Well, greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. It is a Thursday, last program of the week. Um, it's July 2nd, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's July 2nd. So July 4th, uh, this weekend, I was thinking about maybe making some comments um, about July 4th this year. Um, I'm just not sure if these days... You know, last July 4th, how many of us would have even given a possibility uh, that we would be seeing a full-blown Marxist movement in our nation where there's almost nobody uh, that's standing up to this stuff. Um, Even the alleged conservatives have been cowered by it. And local mayors and governors just collapsing right and left into the demands of wiping out the history of the United States. Just wipe it out. Just just disconnect everything and start all over again. Get rid of Mount Rushmore. There are people demanding it. Get rid of Mount, Mount Rushmore. Uh, change the name of, of everything. All on the basis of a Marxist organization that has made its name by being pro-transgenderism, pro-homosexuality, and now evidently somehow took over big tech and everything else. You can't can't open up a browser without, not only without being assaulted by this movement, but this morning I saw an article from the Washington Examiner, UC Boulder. Now, okay, Boulder Boulder has had two left wings for decades. And see what happened is we got we got used to that. We we got used to the fact that academia was filled with people that we just we realized they were Leftists, we realized they they would have loved Stalin, um, but we 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 fooled ourselves into thinking, ah, eh, no big deal. I, I think the idea really, honestly, was once people leave university, they get a job, start living in the real world, start paying taxes, um, that that's somehow going to fix everything, and. We now see from the mayors and governors who think themselves just slightly less than demigods um, that that's not the case. And so we, we've all looked at Boulder like, okay, yeah, leftist university town, crazy as can be. But, hey, you know, there's actually a little... A little town up right hand canyon road out of boulder uh called ward and basically ward is filled with potheads 1960s potheads they hate everybody when you climb the road up there on a bike it's great climb but they hate you they hate all the bicyclists that come through they don't want anybody up there uh when you when you climb the road there's a a, 
semi, it's buried halfway VW bus along the side of the road at one point. It's it's buried in the ground. I'm, I don't don't I have no idea what it's doing there, but that's that's what Ward is. Um, most of us are figured. Well, let them have Ward. You know, they're they're ten thousand feet. You know, they're completely buzzed. They're not going to bother us. You know, just send lots of potato chips, and they'll be they'll be good. Um, we were wrong. Uh, these these folks now have demonstrated that they have zero respect for, and in fact have deep animosity and hatred toward the Constitution of the United States because the Constitution of the United States embodies concepts and perspectives that they want to see destroyed. And they're doing everything they can to do so. And the people on the right are either just too stunned or too cowardly to do anything about it. And so the great purge of the memory of America is, uh, is underway and it's happening even now. And so here comes July 4th and why on earth, given what we, what we are seeing, why on earth would anyone be celebrating July 4th? Given, given what we're hearing, because if you can get rid of Mount Rushmore, if you're, if you're, if you're going to be consistent and purge, any honoring of anyone who had any connection with, well, right now it's slavery. So if there is, so all the founding fathers, I mean, you can make the obviously logical argument that given that slavery existed and the founding fathers did not banish it, there was discussion, there was argument, there was a recognition of its inconsistency. It was a doomed Concept. There's no question about that. Whether we needed to sacrifice 750,000 lives uh, to get rid of it is another issue. Um, that's, a, that's a lot of people, in case you haven't you know, figured that out. 750,000 dead, and that's not including maimed and maimed in un- inconceivable, inconceivable ways. Warfare was brutal. Um, have you ever seen a 50 caliber slug, lead slug that, they, that was used during? Ugh, yeah. Anyway, uh, the, the reality is you look at all the founders, and even if they did not personally, personally have servants or slaves, they um, ran around with people who did. They cooperated with people who did. And there's a long history of that. <laughs> I mean, I, every time I see a picture of the Clintons with Byrd, I, I just chuckle because Democrats have been around for a long time. And you need to understand that th- those were the Democrats. Uh, but you wouldn't know that today. And, and I, I, I have a feeling that 95% of the people who are tearing down monuments and burning things and, and all that kind of stuff, don't have a clue. They they don't know. They 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 don't know what the Democratic Party was about. They, they, they clueless. They have no earthly idea. And the five percent who do just simply don't care because they're they're the hardcore Marxists and they don't care about Black Lives 
or anything like that. They care about one thing, power, obtaining power, breaking down the system. So that's that's what they're they're into. Anyway, so what 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 is being celebrated? And I mean, I I can tell you that I can look back and I can look at the United States of America and because I'm an adult I can be extremely thankful for all the blessings that God has poured out upon this nation and all the ways that God has used this nation without going, oh, we're perfect. No, we've never been perfect. Um, but you know, as I said, because I'm an adult, it is, an, it is the way of the infant to refuse to think in categories, to refuse to recognize uh, spheres of importance. That, that's how children are. That, that's, that is supposed to be an, an ability, a part of the brain that develops at a later point in time. And so it's a part of maturity. It's part of growing up, being able to look at someone and appreciate the good while recognizing that they, like us, were imperfect human beings, and not only did they make mistakes, but they may have lived in a day when there were, there were beliefs that were generally held by many people that we would not hold today, um, and you still are able to go, okay, I, I appreciate, and in fact, I, I can look at what this person did, and there, there's, a, there's a person who is deeply brave, uh, deeply committed, uh, in ways that Almost nobody is today. Almost nobody is today. Um, you know, you look at you look at some of the some of the men. Let, let's get a little bit closer to home. Some of the men who who saved the world from Nazism, who saved the world from the Axis powers. It's easy to drag them out of the 1940s and bring them into 2020 and then tear their monuments down and say we should never say their names again. And yet, not only did they risk their lives, but, but they, they, they gave their lives um, to fight a greater evil. But when you lose the ability to think in categories, there is no such thing as a greater evil. And so, maybe you've seen the movie The, the, the Red Tails. It's about the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, the black uh, fighter pilots in Europe, and the trials and tribulations they went through. It was really interesting because, it, you know, that's 1943 44. 44. Um, and it sounds a lot like 1863-64 and the 54th Massachusetts. Um, very, very similar attitudes that had to be dealt with, even, even though um, 80 years had passed. Similar attitudes that had to be dealt with. And yet, the amazing thing is those men were willing to fight and die for this nation despite the attitudes and the prejudices um, in, at, at both times, at both times, because they saw it as something far greater than what is now seen today. 
and what is allowed to be seen today. And so it just seems to me that we live, we have, we have all of a sudden come to realize that we, we live in a society of absolute children. Just, just an, the, the institutionalization and the exaltation of a childish way of thought that vilifies. So I, I'm sorry, I, I was talking about Boulder. Neep, 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 sorry, neep, back to the school officials at the University of Colorado Boulder sent a memo to faculty and staff outlining that holding the values of the Black Lives Matter movement is a, quote, non-negotiable condition of enrollment, end quote. Campus Reform reported that a handful of school officials signed off on the memo sent on June 5th, despite the school previously saying a fundamental role of the university is to encourage free speech. Well, we know we've been watching how this has worked on university campuses for a long time now. The screeching, the the air horns, the the again, infantile children. Uh, standing in front of classrooms, uh, chanting mindless, meaningless tropes, uh, rather than allow for debate or discussion or dialogue or anything like that. So you've seen this has been going on for years. Um, The memo was signed by the Vice Chancellor for Diversity, Equity, and Community Engagement. In other words, one of the one of the communists um, and others, uh, and describes supporting the Black Lives Matter movement as a quote non-negotiable condition of enrollment and employment end quote according to the news outlet. We value and support the principle of academic freedom and free expression, which are central to our academic mission. Upholding these principles is not mutually exclusive from the idea that we have a responsibility as an academic community to embrace, acknowledge, and promote equal access and inclusion to all who come to our campus to pursue their academic research and career goals, spokeswoman Deborah Mendez-Wilson told Campus Reform response to the memo. At the same time, to be in alignment with our values as a university and to comply with federal and state laws and university policies, we will not condone discriminatory or harassing behavior toward individuals and welcome people who don't agree with those values to reconsider where they want to be a part of our community. You you, you must understand the language of totalitarianism. You must understand that totalitarians, um, when it is useful for them uh, will utilize language like that but the message is clear there is no free speech there is no foundation at University of Colorado Boulder uh, to say hey you know I've noticed that Black Lives Matter as an organization is like really Marxist Um, and you know uh, I, I, I'm not sure that that's really a good idea because I don't think UC Boulder would exist actually as it exists today if this had been a Marxist uh, country and you're out of here boom, you're gone you're not allowed to say that not allowed to say that you need to reconsider your association with our community which means you're gone this is this is where we are 
on July 4th. Well, it's July 2nd, but coming up on July 4th of 2020. So I remember back in Minnesota, this was back before we burned it down. Um, this was over 50 years ago when we would go out, and, and I thought it was really cool. Uh, we would go out and we'd sit on the hood of our old used car and we'd watch the fireworks for July 4th. And that was pretty special. I bet you they had fireworks in downtown Prescott, didn't they? Um, no. Outskirts. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Parades. Ah, no. Well, I just remember, you know, leaning back on the on the windshield uh, at three, four years of age, and just uh, watching those those fireworks, and it was it was awesome. Um, and so, I, you know, I was raised as your standard fundamentalist. Uh, you know, you, almost every church you went to had an American flag and a Christian flag up there on the on the thing, and and it was just sort of connected in your mind. Never dreaming that in my lifetime, I mean, I was born right after the McCarthy era. And uh, so, you know, that had its impact. Never dreaming that someday we'd be sitting here dealing with the reality that um, many of the leaders uh, in government are just straight up, and they won't be honest about it, but they are straight up Marxists. And they are supporting a Marxist movement within our society. That's that's where we are. Makes you wonder what July 4th really is going to mean in the future, or if there is even going to be uh, any type. Because, you know, what happens when communism takes over a nation is they will, they will uh, either co-opt the holidays and change their meaning, or they'll replace them with, you know, let's let's say... Next year, um, there is a um, governmental action that basically suspends the Constitution of the United States and provides something better, i.e. communism. And that happens on the 15th of July. Uh, then that becomes, that, that takes the place of, of July 4th. You, got, you still got to let people have their fireworks. Uh, but you want to connect them to something else now. You've you've destroyed the memories of the old. You want to give them, but you still you have to have some cohesion. That's why you get rid of Black Lives Matter. That's why you get rid of these people. Once the useful idiots have been used, they they disappear. They they you don't even know where they went. Um, and then you start building quote unquote new memories to try to unify the society and hold it together. That's that's what China has done. That's what Russia did. Um, South uh, North Korea, et cetera, et cetera, and that's that's just that's it's the same playbook. They don't have anything new. That's what was so fascinating about that 1969 clip. Uh, it reads like reading the MSNBC ticker because they have the same playbook, and they're just doing it the same way. And there you go. That's that's how it works. So what? Anyways, so that's 20 minutes gone. Sorry about that. Um, what I want to do on the program today is I have some questions for some friends, and I think you will find them questions from, not for, questions from some friends that I think you will find uh, to be challenging and useful uh, as well. That's why I want to uh, address them. 
And so I have some uh, questions here from Matt. So we're going to start with Matt, and then we're going to uh, look at some questions from John. So Matt and John today on the program. Um, first of all, I was asked for book recommendations on either the history of communism or the ideology of Marx. He says, I can't say for sure, but I would guess that I'm one of many in the church today that has little to no understanding of the thinking of Marx or the history of communism. Well, you know, I had to ask some folks, because to be honest with you, um, even though I've done a lot of reading in history, that's where that's where I got my knowledge of these things, is you read about um, post-World War II Europe, and you can't help but be dealing with the rise of the Soviet Union and the establishment of the Berlin Wall and what happens in uh, the Eastern nations, the Eastern Bloc nations, once they fall into the sway of uh, the Soviet Union. And so you just, and of course, I've grown, I grew up during the Cold War. So that doesn't necessarily mean you're getting accurate information at all times, but you, you, you have to deal with those, those realities. And so, I asked some others, and um, I was given the name of uh, a book by Gary North on the subject, and then also, interestingly enough, uh, Thomas Sowell. And I've downloaded Sowell's, uh, the audio, uh, the audible version of Sowell's book. Obviously, I only did that day for yesterday, so haven't gotten to it um, yet. But Sowell, not only a brilliant social commentator, but his primary work and I believe yesterday, or day before, I think day before yesterday was his 90th birthday. He must, what, what must he be thinking um, as he watches all this going, I guess nobody was really listening. Um, yeah. Um, feel sorry about that, but happy birthday to Thomas Sowell. Um, he has a book on Marxism, and so that would be um, anything but that Sowell has done is, is very, very, very good. Um, but so much of it is, you know, it is interesting that after the McCarthy era in the 50s, there was such a backlash to that, which was seen as so heavy handed, that if you opposed communism, if you if you put really a lot of effort out there, you're automatically just labeled as a, as a McCarthyite, as a crazy kook. And that's exactly how they accomplished what they've accomplished in completely taking over the educational institutions of the United States. I mean, I've said many times the reason the wall came down in 89 is because they didn't need it anymore. They had already accomplished their invasion. They had started invading in the late 50s and the 60s. They came through the porous educational system. They took over the professorships. We saw what was happening. We chuckled about it because it seemed so crazy. But, hey, you know, are we really threatened by students banging on windows or standing in classrooms screeching because they can't actually argue with you because they're not bright enough to? Uh, they're just mind-numb zombies. And, and uh, ah, it's over there. That's not, that's not where I am. And now they are in charge. Um, so that's, that's why. Why keep the wall up? You're not keeping people in anymore because the invasion's already worked. Now let's just go get all the goodies from the people who've been working hard all these years. And um, so the walls came down, and that's that's sort of what, what happened there. Um, so 
you can get a lot of that from just reading the history of the past uh, century, uh, which would, of course, include reading histories on the subjects of the massive, you know, the, the well, I don't know, <clears throat> the Gulag Archipelago will take you like three months to read. <laughs> Sol- Solzhenitsyn, still considered by most to be greatest literary work of the last century. Uh, his own suffering under the the communists and and things like that. So you you do have that kind of of material as well. Um, but like I said, it takes most people literally months of concerted effort. Uh, it's huge. I'm not sure how many pages it is, but it's massive, massive. Uh, second question: What does evangelism look like in a time of persecution? This person I'm used to engaging with unbelievers in public, but I can see a day where that would end in an arrest very quickly. Mm-hmm. Do you think we should always look to imitate the apostolic example of boldly preaching Christ in a public square, or are there times where a more undercover approach is beneficial? Well, there you go. Um, we all should be thinking about this uh, because... The answer to that requires us to seriously, well, first of all, seriously requires us to think through some eschatological issues, first of all. Um, if, you're, if you're literally functioning on the idea that tomorrow's it, make no plans for the future, don't worry about the next generations, it's all going to wrap up tomorrow, then that's going to completely change how you're approaching this issue. Um, secondly, when we look at the early church, because it mentioned apostolic example, when you look at the early church, when you look at both how the apostles did what they did, and then how the early church up to the Edict of Toleration so up until the peace of the church in 313. And then during and then it then it changes because now you have a transitionary period between 313 and 380, approximately. And then under Theodosius, you have the proclamation that what is left of the Roman Empire, because this is just uh, 30, 40 years before uh, the barbarians sack Rome, basically. And so Rome's might is collapsing during this time period. And, of course, the pagans blamed it on Christianity, by the way. Uh, Christians have been blamed for a lot of things, but the pagans blamed it all on Christianity. Um, Julian the Apostate, for example, was uh, in that time period, and you know, one of his arguments was, Hey, we were doing great until Christianity came along. And so our gods are punishing us for not truly worshiping them, you know, and so you've got Julian the Apostate comes along. And so that was part of the argument. But here's, here's one of the things to keep in mind. When we look for examples, are we looking for examples in a situation where the church is the small minority in a pagan context. That is where the vast majority of people do not believe that there is one creator God. 
So in, in the early church, they believed that there were uh, gods who themselves were created. So that's the context the early church is, is, is dealing with. But then, once you have sacralism come into existence and the church-state union takes place, now you've got a different situation where you, you're now dealing with people who claim to be Christians, but are so only nominally. So how do you deal with the state when the state uses its power to promote heresy? So once you have the relation, that, that type, type of relationship, this, this is what takes us up to the time of Luther. This is, this is a situation where you know, Luther is staying before Charles, and, and Charles represents the Holy Roman Empire, the, the political authority. And do you submit to the political authority when the political authority is telling you to, in essence, anathematize the gospel? But they're claiming to be Christians. Is that different? And then the Protestant wars after that, and what happens in the United Kingdom, where everyone claims to be a Christian, even in, once again in the United Kingdom, where almost everybody's claiming to be a Protestant Christian. And yet there are now divisions and wars. Um, is that different when, when, the, when the persecuting authority claims to be Christian, how does that change the dynamic from when the persecuting authority hates all Christians and is, in fact, pagan? These are all um, extremely challenging issues that have to be brought to the fore. And right now, we have lots of brothers and sisters who are living under totalitarian regimes. So you can't, if you decide to camp out outside the government-sponsored abortion mill in Beijing with a sign that says, babies are murdered here, you will not get to cry out to anyone other than the military, militarized police who take you away never, ever, ever to be heard of again. Um, so, when you have the freedom to do that, that's different than when you know that if you show up outside that abortion clinic, not only are you going to be alone, but you are sacrificing your life. That, that's going to be it. You're, you're not going to be able to reach any of those women. You are committing state-sponsored suicide. That's, you just know that's what's going to happen. Maybe for a great cause, but what did you accomplish in that cause? And so the church in China has been struggling with these issues for many decades now, and have, has not come to all the same conclusions. Obviously, the state-sponsored, quote-unquote, church is very different than the non-state 
approved church. But in the non-state approved church, because in the state approved church, you just have to, whatever the communist party, the CCP tells you to believe, that's what you believe. Um, and so you just take out all the central aspects of the Christian faith and then put G in there someplace and, and, and you're good. But the non-state sanctioned church, um, how do you do evangelism? It's not street evangelism, obviously. Um, it is person-to-person evangelism. It is familial. It is within a tight community. It's still dangerous because every young person goes to the state-sponsored school and has it drummed into their mind that anyone who would present to them anything other than the supremacy of Xi Jinping is a traitor and is dangerous and should be reported immediately. We've been talking about Karen. (laughs) Karen is just the first wave of what the state will want in, 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 in that situation. So the, the danger of opening up about your faith, it's constant. You really have to take up your cross. Deny yourself, take up your cross. But if you want to see more than one person come to Christ, then you, you have to do it in such a way that you're able to continue to do so and maybe even disciple this person and and then they can do that for someone. And it's been working because by all estimates, there are many, many, many millions of believing Christians, not, not in the faux state church, but in these unregistered churches. And so it has to be done very carefully certainly one of the things that especially because there's been a real crackdown recently over the past few years but before then one of the common requests was we we need theology we know that we need theology but we don't really have it and and it's very difficult to to train men they don't have the, the wonderful things that we have in the freedom of seminaries and freedom of information and books and resources and and, and everything else that we have. I mean, you know, a lot of us have books sitting on our shelves that haven't been opened for years that that would have so much value in places like that, but they can't get there. Uh, we have the overabundance uh, for now. Well, we will have the, how long we're going to have that is a really, really good question. Uh, the cancel culture, cancel culture is that far away from book burning. It really, really is. Um, if you if you'll you know first you start with the monuments then you, then you head for the libraries, that's that's the historical way of doing it. And right now what that means is purging Google and the net and YouTube and everything else in the process. That's that's where they're that's where they go next. Just watch. I hate to, you know we can just sort of sit back and go. Well, we told you so. And then, yeah, there you go. Um, <clears throat> so. I, I know I've been thinking about seeing, you know, digging in 
and tracking down interviews and things like that with some of our our brave brothers and sisters who have been ministering in China because it is the same playbook and we may be able to learn from them in that process. Um, so yeah, uh, not sure what, you know, when you say undercover approach, if you mean personal approach rather than, you know, sitting out on the street corner with a sign and being arrested within 13.4 seconds. Uh, yeah. Uh, how much longer do you think biblically, biblically faithful seminaries will last before they are shut down by the government? What would you recommend to someone who is thinking about entering the ministry in a time like this? What will the future ministry training look like after faithful seminaries are forced to close? Oh, goodness. <laughs> These are good questions. Um, yeah, how much longer? Not much longer. Not in the way that they're functioning now. Um, what's going to happen is there's the, you, you've, you've got to wean yourself from the government milk. Um, and that's going to be really hard for big box seminaries with the big libraries and the big buildings and the big overhead and all the uh, on-campus housing. They have been dependent upon government money, not just the government giving them money. There was a Supreme Court case yesterday about about religious groups and getting money and stuff like that. Um, but primarily in the form of Pell Grants. And so you, you, you get the Pell Grants, you can take out federal loans, student loans, and that's the money we're talking about. And very plainly, and I, a video of me years ago, not that many years ago, about five years ago, on... Um, Wretched with Todd Friel said, you know, what do you see in five years? And I, I said, I see the government using its financial leverage to shut down biblically faithful seminaries so that you can't say anything about homosexuality. You can't say anything about marriage. You can't say anything about transgenderism, things like that. Well, I just simply ask any semi-fair person looking at what's happening in our land today, if... The Democrats take the White House, the Senate, and, and, the, and the House. Uh, you don't see that happening by the end of January? Um, I do. Uh, maybe mid-February. <laughs> Give you a couple of weeks. Um, but I see massive changes. I see the end of homeschooling. Uh, that's going to be the big thing. Um, any, any totalitarian government has to. Uh, control the minds of the children, and hence homeschooling will not be possible. Uh, the jackbooted thugs will take your children away. There is just absolutely no two ways about it. And I know people are sitting out there, hey, you'll never get my kids, I'll get it. Well, uh, again, there have been Christians who've been dealing with these issues for a very, very, very long time. In Germany, uh, homeschooling has not been allowed for decades, and yet there are still Christians in Germany. But they have to deal with the extremely deleterious effects of this type of thing, and that's where churches have to make decisions. You, y yes, sir? 
I think you're spot on on the homeschool issue. I think that's actually the bigger part of the picture as to what the government will be doing. But the question actually assumes that by that point in time, many of these seminaries that we may look at now haven't already imploded because we're seeing so many within the seminaries turn to social justice and turn to all of these secular ways of thinking that the question of the biblically-based seminary, when the government goes to topple it, will it even be around? Yeah, well, Union proves that uh, seminaries can continue to, like zombies, walk along uh, long after they're no longer biblically faithful at all. And just like others who are, you know, the, the, again, the term is useful idiots, used by these movements will then be discarded by these movements. And so the social justice folks uh, will find themselves... It's just a matter of those of us who are conservative will be the first ones in the gulags, and then these other folks, the social justice folks, um, will show up eventually, unless they're willing to completely apostatize. And then we can have a a grand old time discussing how they helped to bring all this to pass and have some debates and things like that. Uh, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Uh, what would you recommend to someone who is thinking about entering the ministry in a time like this? Wow. Um, that would, um, in a time like this, you really, really have to look somebody in the eye and say, are are you ready to make this kind of commitment? This this is this is truly taking up the cross. This is joining the death march. This is um there there's you, you know are you married? Do you have children? Um what what what's what does she say about this situation? Because you, you're talking. None of the comforts of life, most of us may not have them in the near future because that's what socialism brings, um, but tremendous hardship, um, which requires a tremendous commitment to the people of God and to the gospel. You have to be farsighted. You have to be looking down the road going, okay, Things may look really, really bad in our context right now, but the fact is God made us in his image. This lie, this secular lie, cannot satisfy. Yeah, the technology that we have today could prop this system up for a long, long time. It could be rough, but it can't last. It does not have any substance within it. It contains in itself the seeds of its own self-destruction. These people will turn on themselves. And so what's going to rise up out of the ashes? Who is going to lead um, that movement toward an understanding of this is Jesus's world? And so if you are called in such a fashion that 
that is really the only thing you can do. Not that you don't possess abilities to do other things, but you could never be fulfilled if you did them. Then, um, then yeah. But I, I can't, I can't think of a time in the past where I can think of times in the past where people made extremely um, light-hearted decisions to enter into ministry, uh, where you thought that that could be something that you decided, you know, as a young child by yourself without talking to your elders and about getting insight and things like that. Uh, today, I think would be a time where you would have to have some of the strongest commitments to truly looking into the future and thinking about those generations that are coming and how to lay that foundation. So... Uh, what will the future ministry training look like after faithful seminaries are forced to close? Well, it'll look like Second Timothy two too. <laughs> it'll look like what it should have always looked like, to be honest with you. Um, and that is, it it'll have to be done within the local church, and that's what China's having to do, and they're struggling. Um, we'll be hiding books. Um, of course, most of the time that'll be on heart on little little teeny tiny you know jump drives you can it's hard to find stuff like this you know if if the government can't find he says as he throws it away if the government they're thankfully they're fairly um fairly strong little things uh if if the government can't find drugs uh it's pretty tough to find little thing that's pretty easy to hide something like that and you can you can you can get an entire library on something like this these days yeah, it's tough to sniff this out. Yeah, that's that's true. But you can put entire libraries, literally, on stuff like this. And so I'm only joking. I, I wasn't joking when I said that I foresee a time when this program will be distributed by people meeting in dark alleys and passing jump drives as they walk past each other type thing, you know. Uh, by the way, on that point, I got a call before the show where a gentleman was asking me, how he could get one of those jump drives with everything on it. And it's like, we, we haven't actually done that yet. But there yeah. are a lot of things in the, the mix, as, as you, you personally got to witness the other day. So I would be really interested in the size that would be needed to have the audio, not the video... But the audio of all of the debates and the audio archive of the dividing line. I'll actually be able to answer that probably by the end of the summer. That'd be interesting sooner. to me. Yeah, yeah. That 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 I'd like to I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that. Um, because that 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 would yeah that would be very very interesting. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, okay. So, Matt, there you go. Um, not sure if any of that was overly useful. John, Brother John. Um, this question has to do with the issue of God and sin 
and viruses. And this is theodicy. This is theodicy is the justification of God in light of the existence of evil. That's it comes from Theos and Dikaiao, uh, to justify God's existence in light of the existence of evil. And generally issues like diseases, the plague, um, natural disasters, the tsunami in 2000, what was that, 2005? I forget what year that was in Indonesia, where hundreds of thousands of people wiped out in a very brief period of time. This is theodicy, and every Christian has to deal with theodicy. I wish, I truly wish, that this was something that was handled as a part of a basic theology class early on for all new believers, but it isn't. Most believers pick this stuff up over time from multiple sources and hence end up with a theodicy that is not always overly tight as far as being consistent. Um, and so this was raised by the discussion earlier in the week of Graham Codrington's rejection of John Piper's statements about Piper. Everybody knows Piper views himself as somewhat of a prophet, not in the fully charismatic sense of that, uh, but semi charismatic sense of that. And therefore, when he decides to go all out on something, um, that's how he talks. And he was straightforward, and I agreed with what he said. He said, this is not a time for sentimental views of God, and that's right. Um, so, how do we understand that in light of the issue of permission? Uh, the idea that God is not responsible for creating sin, though sin was in his hidden will. Now, Immediately, when we talk about hidden will, we're talking about his sovereign decree. And that being different than his will that is revealed to us in his law. And so, classic example, in his prescriptive will, which is revealed to us, you shall not kill. And yet, we have numerous instances in scripture where God decreed the death of an individual. And of course, the biggest example is Acts 4, 27, 28, the cross itself. Um, and that's central to the very definition of what God's purpose has been. And so the relationship between the decree and the prescriptive will, which is revealed to us, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, etc., etc. Um, the interplay between them, it's not a matter of contradiction. It is a matter of the interplay between them. This is always the issue where you have time and eternity. And how does time and eternity relate to one another? We are creatures that live in time. Our language is time-bound. 
And therefore, any description we give of the eternal state and that which exists outside of time will necessarily be extremely limited. And the danger is we will transport from the lower realm categories and issues into the higher realm. And I don't think that in this life there's anything we can do about that. We are limited. Scripture becomes the one window that we have that allows us to see past where we are. Um, so the, the question is, my understanding has been one of God allowing sin to enter being that it was in his sovereign plan, but we should make sure to say God is not, not to make sure to not say that God is responsible for creating sin or causing man to sin. This is, of course, the issue of primary and secondary causes. This is the very challenging area that all Christians have to deal with, but most Christians don't deal with. <laughs> so, anyone who makes the statement, God created all things, and God knows what the outcome of that creation is, has to answer these questions. My experience is the vast majority opt for easy out theories that are incoherent, that cannot um, stand up to any kind of external examination. What I mean by that is open theism, for example, is the obvious instance of someone saying, well, I want to say that God created all things, um, but there's no way that God could have known what was coming and still be a good God. And so I'm going to say God does not know exhaustively all future events. Specifically, he does not know what free moral creatures are going to do. That's what open theism teaches. That opens the door for autonomous human will. It also opens the door in its fuller forms like process theology for situations where God is growing and learning and, and things like that and developing over time and getting better. Now, the open theist doesn't want to go there, but it opens the door to it. Um, and it's sort of hard to see how they can't go there. But leaving open theism aside, if we say that God knows all future events, he has exhaustive foreknowledge, then we have to deal with theodicy in many of the same ways. It's just that most people don't really have an answer. They'll just simply say, that's mystery. I don't know. I just can't go here. I can't say that. And then when you come to specific examples, such as, we'll go ahead and use COVID-19, it would be much, I think, I think it's much better to look to 1347 to 1351, which my wife has become an expert on recently. <laughs> did I tell you that? She, yeah, I did. She's been watching the, uh, the Great Courses Plus uh, class on uh, the, the Black Death. <laughs> so, so she now, now we can have fascinating conversations about, because uh, I've read a number of books on that subject and listened to that, that course too, uh, last year or the year before. Um, but that, that one seems much more useful because 
despite our media and despite the panic, um, the survivability rate for COVID-19 is currently sitting at 99.74%, uh, I think. Um, so uh, average age 81 globally, I think. Um, so, you know, the great, the great mortality, the black plague, 50 to 70% mortality rate, one form of it would kill you in less than 24 hours and in a really ugly fashion. And in major cities, you in some major cities, you had as many as 70% of the people gone in just a matter of weeks. You couldn't, didn't have enough people to bury the, bury the bodies. Um, and across Europe, 40 to 50% of the people gone in just a matter of years. Yeah, that was big. Okay, that's, that's, that's a serious uh, pandemic, <laughs> uh, to put it ni- nicely. And so the question is, did God know about it? Did God know it was coming? Did, did God know when he created it, it was going to happen? Or was it just a possibility? If we believe in predestination, the answers to all those questions have already been built into the package. Because if you believe in the personal aspect of the atonement, if you believe that in Christ, that all of the elect are joined to Christ in his death. So it's not just some generic, impersonal thing. That we truly die with Christ. We're truly buried with him. We truly raise, are raised up with him. That means, if, so in other words, if you hold an orthodox, historically orthodox understanding of predestination election, and that is that the elect are known to God and are the subject of his favor, then when they live and when they die has to be a part of his decree. How could he elect someone? And then something comes into his creation that kills that person before the time when they were going to be regenerated and brought into a knowledge of their Savior. That, that, can't, that can't work. So the decree has to include everything that can kill humans, <laughs> which is a lot of stuff. I mean, a virus is a teeny, teeny, tiny little thing. Uh, so the decree has to be exhaustive. Now, some people want to try to say, well, you know, God sort of, God takes care of the big stuff, but he, leaves, he doesn't sweat the little stuff. It's the little stuff that determines all the big stuff. I mean, there, there are so many instances of huge battles that have determined entire wars, which were decided by the tiniest little thing. It wasn't the big general. It was a private somewhere that turned the tide one way or the other. Um, little things. The fabric of time has... If you understand fractal mathematics, I love fractals. I, most of you know I've been doing fractal art forever. You, you change the smallest little factor 
in fractal mathematics, and the result is massive. It's huge. That's why they say weather is fractal. You know, you've heard the story that a a butterfly taking off from a bush on a mountainside in Colorado can determine whether a hurricane does or does not hit a city in Florida. And that's true. That little wind current, whether the butterfly goes this way or that way, at a certain time, that tiny little factor blown up across the nation can have that kind of impact. It, it literally can. And people sometimes struggle to understand how that works, but it, it does. So that I don't know how much R.C. Sprawl... R.C. and I never talked about fractals, unfortunately. We didn't have a lot of time in the few times we met for lengthy discussions of things like that, but I don't remember any discussion of fractals. We were primarily talking about justification. But um, his famous statement, that if there's even one renegade atom in the universe, that God cannot be sovereign, because that one renegade atom could overthrow all of his intentions and purposes, I think shows an understanding of what fractal mathematics would likewise demonstrate. So uh, the, the point is that when we use the term permit, um, Calvin is well known for having, uh, he recognized that one of the ways that people were trying to get around the proclamation of God's sovereign decree was the idea of permission. When you permit something, you, do not, you, are, you are avoiding the issue of causation. But the issue of causation doesn't go away. So where does it come from? This is why we have spent time many times in the past warning about the final result of the free will theists and the attempts by people like Leighton Flowers to say that there are things that arise in the universe completely separate from the will of God. That in some mysterious way he may have had knowledge of, I, like I've said many times, I, I think Leighton wishes he could be an open theist, but um, somehow God has knowledge of these things, but they don't arise from God. They arise outside of the creative activity of God. So there's multiple creators. There's, mul there's multiple sources of things in the creation. It's, it's sort of necessary for any type of free will theism. Uh, to deny that God is the origin and source of all things. But when you say God is the origin and source of all things, you're not saying that God is the primary cause of all things. God creates the universe. It has its own true existence. And secondary causes are actually established by his sovereignty rather than diminished. They have true meaning. The incarnation proves this. Jesus isn't just a robot. Jesus isn't just a puppet. What happens in time is real, but it is secondary in comparison to the primary 
source that gives rise to everything, which is found in the eternal decree of God. So when we say, if, if, we, if we talk about COVID, all right, do we say that God permitted this? Well, you could make that statement, but what do you mean by it? Are you saying that it arose from something outside of God's sovereign purposes? Did it, did it arise from Satan's work? Uh, did it arise um, naturally or just by happenstance or just a random action? Because within the secular perspective, that's how any virus arises other than when mankind does it himself. Uh, until, until a few years ago when we developed CRISPR technology, um, it had to be done rather randomly. We did a lot of it by blowing up nuclear weapons on the surface of the planet, not realizing what radiation would do as a result and messing with the DNA of our bodies. Um, but before that, it was just all random. And so in the secular world, it is all random. It, it, just, it just happens. But there is no randomness in the Christian worldview. And if God has exhaustive knowledge of all future events, there can't be anything random. Let me give you an example and it's a, I think it's a good example. It's an important example. Um, from Isaiah chapter uh, 41, and we've, we've talked about this many times before, but I just want to, I just want to emphasize it here uh, briefly. Um, when God is rebuking the idolatry of his people and he's rebuking the false idols, he says, Present your case, Yahweh says. This is Isaiah 41, 21. Present your case, Yahweh says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. This is, he's, he's, he's talking about the idols. The idols are being put on trial. And they have been made of wood and metal and so on and so forth. And so, all right, you, you want to you uh, compare gods, Israel? You, wanna, you want to uh, go after idols? All right, present your case, Yahweh says. Bring forward your strong arguments, King of Jacob says. Let them bring forth, let those idols bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were that we may consider, get rid of the instant details here, that we may consider them and know their outcome or announce to us what is coming, declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. This is called sarcasm, in case we're not used to it. I'm not sure that anyone can use sarcasm anymore. Um, I mean, look at Babylon B gets in trouble constantly uh, for using satire. This is, this is a form of satire. Um, Declare the things that are going to come afterwards that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil. You're, you're looking at this idol sitting there. Which can't move, doesn't have a mouth. That's that's the whole point of all this. Uh, do good or evil that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. You can just hear the prophet. This is dripping with satire. Behold, you are nothing. You are a zero. And your work amounts to nothing. And he who chooses you is, and that's a very important Hebrew word right there, Toeva, abomination. Toeva, he who chooses you is an abomination. So here's the here's the point. 
God says, all right, get in the witness box. Let's hear your best arguments. And so let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. So the ability to know the future is one of the definitive attributes of God. Let them bring forth, declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome. Now that, I haven't heard a lot of people emphasizing this, but but it must be emphasized. Because God does not just say, see, in this trial of false gods, this is where we learn a lot about the true God is where he says, this is what false gods can't do, and only I can. I can tell you what's coming, and I can tell you what happened in the past. Now, wait a minute. I've I've taught history for decades, so I can tell you what happened in the past, not exhaustively. There's a lot of times we have to go, well, we don't know what happened. Uh, The farther back you go, the more spotty things become. But even in modern warfare, sometimes you just go, we don't know why that happened. But that's not all there is. God is not sitting here saying, I am the greatest historian ever. He says, as to the former events, declare what they were. That's the historical part. That we may consider them. And what's the last part here? Know their outcome. Ta eschata in the Greek Septuagint. That's where we get eschatology, the last things, the the final things. Know what the outcome of it was. See, that's where historians have to stop. Because historians can only tell you what happened. They can only speculate. And sometimes we have information. Sometimes we know something about what the motivations of people involved in something were. But most often, we don't know. How can God tell us what the outcome is? because it's part of his sovereign decree. Same reason he can tell you what's going to happen in the future. It's part of his sovereign decree. If it's going to happen in this universe, it's part of his sovereign decree. Right now, I showed you all the picture, uh, and I sent John this picture too. Um, I showed you all this picture that I took of Alberio. And right now, differing amounts of hydrogen are being fused into helium in the cores of those two stars that form Alberio. There are different temperatures, there are different sizes. One's beautiful gold, the other's beautiful blue. There's a reason for that. But the point is, there is a certain number of tons of hydrogen being fused into helium in the cores of those stars, which is why we can see them, because it produces massive amounts of energy, even though it's 434 uh, light years away. So, God knows exactly how much helium is being converted in, uh, hydrogen is being converted into helium in the cores of both of those stars. And every star that forms the Milky Way, that's 100 to 150 billion, 
in every one of the 100 to 150 billion galaxies. God knows. Because it's a part of the very fabric of time that he brought into existence. And according to Colossians chapter 1, he, in Christ, holds all these things together. Sunestikin. We don't know that. In the secular worldview, nobody knows that. But the challenge, now remember, this is Isaiah. This is the Isaiah that gives us Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, Isaiah 53. This guy's got a really good track record. <laughs> you know? What he has said was going to happen is what has happened. Interestingly enough, that's the one where the same book where we have God saying, tell me what's going to happen, because I'll tell you what's going to happen. And then we see it all being fulfilled. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Um, so, that's a lot of background uh, to uh, when we say, it says, but we should make sure to not say that God is responsible for creating sin or causing man to sin. This is the issue of theodicy. And what we need to say is that actually post-Adam, there has to be two, two areas here, pre-fall, post-fall. Post-fall is not that difficult. In the post-fall universe, God is restraining evil. He says he does. We have examples of him doing so. He's restraining evil. Um, but the real issue, and, and, and so, so post-fall, it's not like God has to come up behind a fallen human being who wants to do good, and put a gun to his back and say, do bad stuff. No. The, the reality is he has to restrain evil. He has to keep Joseph's brothers from killing Joseph um, and still accomplishing his purposes through that. There is restraint. The philosophical issue is, well, what about pre-fall? How can the fall of Adam be known to God, part of his decree, without God creating evil? That was the question that basically Calvin says, when God makes an end of speaking, we make an end of speaking. Scripture does not answer that question. Not in the way that we want to answer it, as fallen be human beings post-fall. And that's where Calvin and Edwards, who were not contemporaries, obviously, but Calvin and Edwards part ways is because Edwards thought he could answer that question. And he couldn't. He tried, and he ended up in a morass as a result. And that's why I've always used those two. Probably two of the greatest minds the church has ever seen. That God, two of the greatest minds that God has ever redeemed. But one recognized presuppositionally that when it comes to answering questions about Adam's nature, 
We got two chapters. Can we pick something up maybe in a statement in a minor prophet or a comparison somewhere in the New Testament or something? Maybe. But we basically got two chapters, and they aren't focused upon telling us about the nature of Adam. Anything we get from those two chapters is really speculative. And so if God wanted us and felt like we had to be able to answer that question, he would have given us the answers. And one of the things that people chafe at is thus far and no farther. The things that are revealed belong to you and your children. The things that are hidden, they belong to God. And when it comes to the nature of Adam and how Adam in a pre-fall state relates to the sovereign decree of God, we are given next to no information. All we are told is a judge of all the earth always does right. In the end, God is going to be justified in everything he has done. And his grace is going to be glorified. And no one will receive injustice. The number who will receive mercy and grace is as the sand of the sea. Do with that what you will. The one who rose from the dead said it was true. The one who rose from the dead said it was true. So we do affirm that there is a meaningful distinction between primary and secondary causes. We do affirm that God holds men accountable for acting upon the desires of their wills, the desires of their, their will acting on the desire of their heart, sorry. Um, and we do affirm that God has never forced any individual to do evil. But God has decreed every act of evil that has taken place and in his providence has suppressed far more evil in the heart of man than has ever been demonstrated by the heart of man. For which we almost never give him thanks. It's true. When was the last time any of us gave, you know, we saw all this evil exploding around us over the past couple of weeks. Could have been a lot worse. Could have been a lot worse. If you're still living in your home and have food and clothing on your back, it could have been a lot worse. Do we give thanks? No, we're normally we're complaining. That's sort of how we work. Um, okay, let me. I need to figure, finish this up. Um, so the question is asked, would it be accurate to use a similar outlook that coronavirus is in God's plan because all it happens is due to what he has foreordained? Yet he didn't cause it to happen, meaning he, res- he restrained himself from stopping it as to fulfill his will. I'm not, not sure how that works. Um, or does this approach not work and limit God's sovereignty? The, the question is, um, what is the origin and source of these things? We have to affirm, in light of Psalm 139, and it's it's a basic biblical teaching about the nature of man that my my days are written in his book 
I mean, the only way that you can have this tapestry of God's intention and purpose over time is if my life is here, and then my kids are here, and my grandkids are there, and so I'm... um, we're, we're going to have the kids over uh, tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow night, they're going to be staying with uh, Nani and Punkle. And so, you know, we're making plans as to, you know, what treats we're going to have and what food. And, and you know, <laughs> the fact that our one cat will allow them to pet him. The other cat will be <laughs> will voluntarily banish himself to the outdoors in the heat as long as they're there. Um <laughs> That's just the way it is. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're making we're making plans, and and so there's always just as there were with my kids, and my kids will tell you this. With my grandkids, we have serious discussions about worldview and human life and morality and what the Bible teaches about our calling in this world. And, 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 and so Nani and Punkle, that's me and my wife, um, we want to have, continue to have, and I would say have had up to this point, a positive influence upon their lives. Does God not know how long that influence is going to be? He has to. It has to be a part of his decree. My, my days are written in his book. I mean, that's, that's the direct statement of Scripture. But logically, we can see why that is. Because my life has influence in their lives. And because of this contraption sitting in front of me that I'm staring at, a lot of other people's lives. There are people in ministry today because of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Many, many people. That means there, there is this, you know, you, you throw the pebble into the pond and out go the waves. And that's, there's lots and lots of waves that are interacting. The only way that therefore this can all resound to his glory is if it is a part of his decree. And so have Christians, has COVID-19 been in the sovereignty of God, a part of how he has brought his saints to himself in death. Yes. Yes. Just as tuberculosis, heart disease, every form of cancer, um, traffic accidents, uh, bridge collapsings, uh, floods, tsunamis, lightning strikes... Has, has, has God ever brought one of his home real fast in a lightning strike? Yeah. Was that fortuitous? Was God going, oh, man, one of my, one of, one of my people just got zapped by lightning. I, next week, I was going to have him witness to somebody. Oh, what am I going to do now? Is No, that's not what's going on. That's how a lot of people view things. That's... That's not how it's going on. So we need to, I believe, that if we're going to utilize examples from Scripture, from Genesis 50, Isaiah 10, Acts 4, 
so many instances through the prophets and into the life of, of, of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, we want to use our language in such a way as to emphasize what's emphasized in Scripture. And what's emphasized in Scripture is that all of this is going to result in God's glory. And it's not like he's just trying to pick up the pieces. And so that's why I didn't object to Piper's statement. Um, COVID-19 could not have come into existence as COVID-18. Because you do know the 19 is the from 2019. That's when it was first identified. It couldn't have been COVID-18. And it couldn't have been COVID-20. Um, or God's purposes couldn't be fulfilled in his, in his elect, in his people. That is when he chose to bring it into existence. That is when he chose to weave it into everything else that he's doing and accomplishing in this world, which we cannot see necessarily from our perspective. That's why we're called to trust. Um, but he does so. And that's why the plague struck in 1347 and not 1346. And every time it came back, Give me, what, give me another example. One of the things that I've loved about studying John Calvin, because he's hated by so many people, and even amongst Calvinists, he's looked at as this cold intellect. Until I read his biographies and came to recognize that when the, the plague came to Strasbourg, he loved being in Strasbourg. He didn't want to go back to Geneva. He loved being amongst his own people. French-speaking congregation. And when the plague came there, he did not leave. He ministered to his flock as a pastor. That changed him. And his writings have been determinative of entire forms of government since then. You don't tell me that that infection of the plague that came into Strasbourg at that time was not purposeful in God's intention? Of course it was. You couldn't see it at the time, but it was. He was accomplishing his purposes. Um, so, and then the last question is, so should we say that God gave me cancer or God gave me COVID-19? Well, Piper does. Piper wrote an entire book, Don't Waste Your... It wasn't called... What's it called? Don't Waste Your Cancer? I think that was the name of it. Because he had prostate cancer. Um, you have the book. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yes. Uh, don't Waste Your Cancer. So, what, what is he saying? What he's saying is we should embrace... The sovereignty of God that creates providence. Because as I view it, providence is the actions of God in time, which comes about from his decree as to what time was, was to be all about. We are to embrace and to love God's providence because he's good. Because his grace is beautiful. Because his grace gave us an empty tomb and a perfect savior and united us to him. And therefore we should not be like the people of the world 
that are constantly questioning God's goodness. But we should be amongst those who are constantly confident of God's goodness. And that therefore, and see, I know you got to get out of here. You're, you're good for another 10, maybe. Um, you got to understand, and I'm, I'm answering this for John. I haven't said anything more about John. Maybe someday I'll be able to tell you more about John. Um, but uh, I was a hospital chaplain. And again, fascinating providences of God that forced me into that. Forced me into that. I was forced into being a hospital chaplain. Rich remembers. We, we lost 60% of our funding in one day. And I had to find something because we didn't. I got kids, family, had to find something. And uh, ended up in that situation. And it changed me. I mean, it, it really changed me. It was tough work, extremely tough work. Everything that I read about it before I started doing it violated my understanding of theology. <laughs> I couldn't find a single book. That's because I hadn't gotten hold of the Puritans as far as having a lot of resources amongst them. Um, but I had to come to understand that the people that I saw st- suffering, when, when I, I... I don't know how anyone could continue working as a chaplain and not believe that God has a purpose in every situation that, that they're looking at. Otherwise, it just becomes a random mess and I would think would drive people into atheism. I really do. To see all that suffering and if your theology says this is not God's hand, God's going to do his best to make something good out of it, but it's all random. That means, see, that's why you become an open theist. So you can say, God didn't see any of this coming. Yeah, but he created it so it would happen. So why in the world would you worship him if he didn't even see it was coming? He's doing, just now just doing his best, trying to make everything, going, oops, oh man, I made a mess. Let's, let's all work together to try to make this, this work better. Or in the standard evangelical explanation is, yes, God knew all this was going to happen, but he doesn't have any purpose for it because he doesn't have a sovereign decree. So he created this universe with all this senseless pain and suffering in it that has no reason, no purpose. And that's some, somehow supposed to make you feel better about God. Yep, I created it. I knew it was all coming, but I don't have any purpose in it. Praise be. Huh? That's not how I see anything in Scripture. That's not how I read Isaiah. That's not what Isaiah believed. No way. Mm-mm. That's not Romans 8. That's not Romans 9. Mm-mm. No way. Certainly not Ephesians 1. So, yes, we're saying God has a purpose, and that means, yes, um, you know, I've, I'm old enough now. We can, we can talk about, you know, Piper had prostate cancer. I'm personally of the opinion I think we've all got it. It's just when it decides to do its thing. I'll just be honest with you about it. I, I think that's probably the best explanation. It's the great fear of any guy, probably like breast cancer for a woman, prostate cancer for a guy. Um, 
the Phil Johnson just announced publicly that he's got it. Um, Piper had it. Um, we, we don't even seem to realize we live in a day where it's only been over the past few decades that there was anything we could do about any of this stuff. Discovering it or treating it. I mean, it was just simply a death sentence for all of human history. It's just been a death sentence. That's it. That's how God's going to take you out. Um, and so when you think of how many of God's servants down through the ages have gone into glory through these methods and mechanisms, are we saying that that was not God's hand? We really have to think these things through. And it really forces us to go, so when God calls us to trust, even in the midst of pain and suffering, maybe that's what the trust is about. Maybe what I'm being called to do is to trust his goodness when I can't see it, when I have such a limited perspective, when I'm just looking down from and I, I can't see. One last illustration. Um, just popped into my head. It, it's, a, it's a geeky one, so sorry. But I was, I told you the story on the last program about my wife and I going out. And we, we wanted to take pictures of the Milky Way, but we ended up hiding in the car because of eyes that were staring at us out in the darkness um, that I shot at. It was fun. And how many satellites we saw zooming around and all sorts of neat stuff like that. But one of the things that I got to talk to my wife about was Sagittarius A-star. And Sagittarius A-star um, is something that mankind did not know about until 20 years ago. It had been theorized, but we, we got the evidence of it starting about 20 years ago. And you have looked up at the sky day or night and your eyes have looked at the part of the sky where Sagittarius A-star is, but you've never seen it. Even on that most beautiful, clear camping night at high altitude where you saw more stars than you could ever imagine and you saw the Milky Way, you looked at Sagittarius A-star, but you didn't know it. And mankind has always done that. Didn't know it. Sagittarius A-star is the massive black hole at the center of our galaxy. How do we know it's there? We can't see it. There's all this dust in the way. That's what the Milky Way is. It's unlike the Manichaeans. <laughs> it's a uh, <laughs> whole other topic there. Uh, yep, not an hour ago. Um Unlike the Manichaeans, uh, that's not where the light is returning to the realm of light. No, um, that's, that's a lot of stars and dust that is the rest of our galaxy. And if you look toward Sagittarius, the constellation of Sagittarius, Sagittarius A-star is where the center of our galaxy is. And through the use of infrared, we've been able to look through all that dust and see that there is something at the center of our galaxy that can take stars that are 10 times more massive than our own 
and whip them around at a million miles per hour. You've got to have a lot of gravitational power to whip around a star 10 times massive than our own. And in our solar system, 99.8% of everything in our solar system is in the sun. All the planets, and everything, even massive Jupiter, 0.2%. So you take something 10 times bigger than that, whip it around at a million miles per hour, you're fairly powerful. That's what Sagittarius A star is. That's the massive black hole at the center of our galaxy. Mankind had no idea of it for our entire history until over the past 20 years. It is not visible to us. There is too much dust, between too much stuff between us and the center of our galaxy for us to see it. So how did we come to know about it? We were given the ability to see it through infrared spectrometry. Uh, Spitzer. Um, we have a couple of them up there now, uh, and unfortunately are delaying what's going to be the super-duper one uh, that we're relaunching later on. Webb, I think, is the name. Anyway, um, but Spitzer is the primary one that's found so much out there in the infrared area. We had to be given the sight to be able to see. Our natural sight couldn't do it. When it comes to spiritual things, this is what gives us the ability to see. When we don't use this as the lens, we will only have human traditions, human guesses, nothing more. Nothing more. So, there you go. Um, I think I got to everything from my two friends. And hopefully all the rest of you found the discussion to be useful, maybe a little challenging, maybe a little weird, but hopefully useful. Um, these days, when we talk about we'll be back again next week, we're always wondering what's going to happen between now and then. Lord yeah, Lord willing, Deo Valente, Deo Valente, we will be back Um because, I mean, I'm seeing more and more stuff about people who've been banned from YouTube and, and everything else. And I just think it's a matter of time. By the way, what that means is bookmark aomin.org. Get an RSS feed going. Aomin.org. Uh, Feedly. I, I set up Feedly and, and, and stuff um, because we're really going to look to try to head this off. Um, and it'll take them longer to get rid of us there than any place else. So aomin.org, bookmark it. If all of a sudden you don't see us on Facebook, you don't see us on Twitter, uh, obviously I'm on Parlay. And that may that may be, you know, when the when the big two go, that may be where we can do announcements and stuff like that. You know, we'll see. Uh, but um, Lord willing. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for watching the program today. God bless.